You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Nehemiah 5, beginning in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we have our many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. And there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money from the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, and our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and I said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took them from their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there is a term called character identification. And as we're being swept up into a story, maybe it's a movie that you're watching, maybe it's a book that you're reading, maybe it's a TV series that you're streaming. What ends up happening is we don't even think about this, by the way, it just happens naturally, is we begin to scan the plot line and the storyline looking 
for the character that best represents us. And typically, it's going to be the protagonist, the main character. And we begin to identify with their experience and their achievements and their hardships and their values and their goals. And what this really reflects is something about us. It reflects what we believe to be true about ourselves. Well, clearly I'm the hero. Or clearly I'm the underdog. Or I'm the overcomer. Or I'm the oppressed. Whether we're on the right side or the wrong side of the situation. And here's what rarely happens. Rarely do we identify with the bad guy. You're like, oh, the psychopath murderer, that's me, right away, like I knew it, right away. So as we've been making our way through Nehemiah, this is a pretty effortless process. Think about this. As Christians, we are naturally going to identify with the people of God, within the walls. Here we are, building against all odds. Here we are, building against the opposition. We're doing God's work. And there are enemies out there like Sambalot and Tobiah. Yeah, there are threats to the progress, but the good guys are here, bad guys out there, right? And we've settled for this, into this groove. The story is moving along quite smoothly under that arrangement. And then chapter five comes and throws that all off. And if you're reading it, you should be like, crap. (laughs) I underestimated where this was going. We thought that we were the good guys in here and the bad guys are out there, the neighboring pagan nations. But again, we're on the inside, so we're we're on the right side, right? We're on God's side. However, we begin to see this like subtle yet devastating threat that emerges, if you've been paying attention here, it emerges here in chapter five from within the walls of Jerusalem. There's enmity among us. Who is it? You know, that sort of thing. And there's internal threat that arises among God's people. One that I believe should do this. It should unsettle us a little bit. It should cause us to examine our own lives. And I hope it should conclude with us repenting and believing again in the sufficient grace of Jesus Christ. That's where I'm going to try to get us today. So the direction for this morning's passage, we're going to look at this passage under three headings. The problem within the walls, a passionate response, and lastly, personal sacrifice. Let's look first at the problem within the walls. Look with me again in verse 1, and we're going to be planted here in the text. So open up your Bibles if you do have them, or open up that app. Uh, Verse 1, now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. A great outcry. Now, a reader of the scriptures, particularly a Jewish reader, something would have triggered in their mind when they heard that word, that phrase, a great outcry. It's got some biblical baggage to it, and I mean that in a good way. That, that phrase, a great outcry, appears earlier in Scripture in the book of Exodus. It's the same phrase that we see when the children of Israel are under harsh oppression. They're in slavery in Egypt. They're being treated horribly. And then a great outcry rises to God. He pays attention and he sends a deliverer named this Exodus. Moses, good. Okay, open up your Bibles to Exodus. 
Moses to be a deliverer and to rescue them out. Great outcry. But this is what's particularly unsettling here about this scene, that the men and the women are crying out because of the mistreatment from their own people. That's the jacked up thing here. Not harsh foreign oppressors, but their own fellow covenant people, our quote, Jewish brothers. And there are three distinct complaints that arise. First one's in verse two. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So there's a basic problem here. Too many mouths to feed, not enough food to feed them. So these were these families and individuals that had sacrificed working their own fields, working their own farms, working their own jobs so that they could dedicate themselves to this God-ordained rebuilding of the wall. They're putting all their time and energy into this, and they're just not able to juggle both. And when the harvest is slim that year, there wasn't enough food, and then the food wasn't being equally distributed among people. That's the first outcry. The second one's in verse 3. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So, despite what Dave Ramsey would tell them at this time, if he was around, right, they are mortgaging against their properties. They are, they are borrowing against their homes in order to eat, just to live. So they're having to sacrifice the future, they're having to compromise ancestral wealth. Like, this is the farm that my father and my grandfather, my great-grandfather, you know, or, well, there would have been a gap in generations because of exile, but th this is land that was theirs way, 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 way back, and they're having to borrow against it just to put food on the table. The third outcry is in verse four. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. So despite desperate times, despite this, like, distinctly wartime mentality, like we are all in on this rebuilding project, guess what was still due at the end of the month? Taxes. What's the old phrase? Two certain things in this world, death and taxes. Little history lesson. The Persian Empire, which ruled over Jerusalem at this time and all the pretty much neighboring um, nations, they were the empire. They were the superpower at this time. The Persian Empire was pretty understanding when it came to each distinct nation's culture and their religious expressions. Persia didn't care about Jews being Jews. It wasn't like, oh no, worship our gods or whatever. It's like, no, be as Jewish as you want. In fact, rebuild your temple, rebuild temple practices, be as Jewish as you want, so long as they what? Paid their taxes. You thought that politician shared your morality. <laughs> pay your taxes. When Alexander the Great, uh, history tells us, actually he wrote this, when Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire centuries later, he actually rode into Susa. Does that sound familiar? We read about that earlier in Nehemiah. That's where Nehemiah gets the call from God. It's where he served Artaxerxes. He rolls into Susa and discovered there in the coffers of the empire 270 tons of coined gold and 1,200 tons of coined silver. So it's like that scene out of The Hobbit where smogs in the depths of the misty mountains, right? And he's like breathing over his gold, mine. What was Josiah's illustration? Scrooge McDuck, 
just diving into his gold. We're never going to let that one die. So here's what the empire did. They taxed and they taxed and they taxed, brought it in. And this was just his winter palace, by the way. And then it rarely made its way back into these nations, into the cities to rebuild their infrastructure. So the money's just coming in one way. And so the Jewish people reached this very heartbreaking, desperate place. Look with me in verse 5. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet, we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So, we need to feel the heartbreak here. Some families have gotten so desperate, so hard-pressed, that they're beginning to sell their own children into slavery. In fact, some families have already reached that point. And as heartbreaking as that already sounds, some commentators that I read believe that the daughters that are already in slavery were sold into prostitution. Their sons and their daughters. Now think about this. Excessive debt, housing foreclosure, corporate greed, increasing poverty, human trafficking. Does any of this sound familiar? So here's the indictment. It's very personal. What makes us and our children any different from you? What makes my children any less deserving of life and dignity than yours. Remember, the great outcry is against their own Jewish brothers. This is not an outcry against the Persian Empire. This isn't even them complaining about the taxes. They're just like, we know it's a reality. It's just gonna happen. The outcry is against their own people. Their own people. And here's why. Instead of helping their fellow believers who were, quote, powerless... The wealthy are exploiting them in their desperate state. They're capitalizing on their poverty. They're taking advantage of it. According to verse 7, they are exacting interest from their own fellow people, which, by the way, was in violation of God's law. In Deuteronomy, the children of Israel are told, you can charge interest on a loan so long as it's not towards your brother. Yeah, if you want to, like, charge interest to the neighboring people, whatever. Don't charge interest to your own covenant people, though. So they're breaking God's law, and it's the people of God, did you catch this? Purchasing other believers' children in slavery. So instead of saying, I've got some extra money to help redeem your child out of slavery, I'm going to take advantage because I need some more helping hands around here. Are we feeling the depth of how jacked up things have gotten? There's a serious problem festering within the faith community. And I want you to pay attention to this. It is one that is more devastating than any of the enemies outside the walls could have ever schemed up. Did you read Sambalat and Tobiah's name in this passage? No. All they had to do is just sit back and watch it implode. God's people are using each other. They're compromising. They're not repenting of their sin. They're bringing dishonoring, honor to God. They are welcoming the taunts of the nation. Look how pathetic they are. 
And now they are undoing what they have been working towards for so long. And they're justifying it. Here's why. Look at the wall. Look at the progress that we're making. Well, at least we're still building, right? Wrong. Wrong. Nehemiah won't stop the work for enemies like Sambalot and Tobiah. Even at the threat of death, Nehemiah says, all right, guys, take up one sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. We're going to defend our homes. We're going to protect the foreign invaders come, but we are going to keep building. This project cannot stop until here. Until this very situation, which now demands that the whole project come to a screeching halt, is put on pause. And here's why. Because it doesn't matter how beautiful a thing that we build it doesn't matter how, how much we seem to be progressing, how much we accomplish. This is not what progress looks like in God's economy. The end does not justify the means. This is not godly, righteous progress. What, what Nehemiah is saying is that we are succeeding at utterly failing right now. Which leads us to our second point, a passionate response. You guys still with me? Verse six, I was what? No, very angry. Very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Now, let me ask you a question. Anger, good thing or bad thing? Wait, what? Both, okay, good. Tricky thing, huh? Because Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. But then we read elsewhere, like in, for instance, the Psalms or in Ephesians, Paul picks this back up. He says, be angry and yet do not sin. So there is a kind of anger that is like murdering someone in your heart that leads towards sin. But there's also a kind of anger that is right and leads towards good and justice. So we would do well to pause right now and begin to assess what kind of anger is coming out of our lives. Is it the kind that leads towards good and justice or is it the kind that just like tears things apart? So let me ask you again, Nehemiah's anger, good thing or bad thing? Okay, we'll go with that one. I believe it's good and here's why I believe it's good. Because it's based on their outcry and these words that he's heard. Their outcry, these words. This is not anger over personal feelings. This isn't like, I'm mad because you hurt my feelings. I'm mad because you said something I don't like. I'm mad because you disagree with me. This is not a subjective interpretation of the facts like counselors teach you to do. Like, don't, don't tell them anything about you, but tell them how you feel about the situation. I feel about this, like the way I interpreted this situation right now, that's fine. <laughs> but it's, here's how you know it's righteous anger. Ready? For anyone that deals with anger, this is important. It's others-focused. It's objective. It's in clear violation of God's word. And it's compromising the reputation of God's kingdom. It's not personal offense. It's not, I feel wounded. It's objective. It's others-focused. It's in clear violation of God's word. And it's compromising the reputation of God's kingdom. It's righteous anger. My kids and I have been reading through John's gospel together. 
And we came to this, the latter half of John chapter 2. It's, it's after that amazing scene where Jesus turns water into wine. And <clears throat> before we read on, I asked them a question. They said, have you ever seen Jesus really mad? I probably said pissed. Have you ever seen Jesus pissed? And they're like, oh, I don't know. Kind of like how you guys answered that question. I'm like, eh, both, I don't know. And I said, yes, sorry, I know, I know. I said it in front of a kid. Um, <laughs> Um, and I said, now you have, pay attention, and I read John. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. So Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple he drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he said to them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, passion or zeal for God's house will consume me. Passion. So at the end of the day, the issue is not whether or not we get angry. At the end of the day, the primary issue is what we are passionate about. What we are passionate about will then determine how we express anger. Think about this. If we are passionate about our own comfort or our own reputation or our own financial success or our respect or our personal agendas or always being right or our strong opinions, then our anger is almost always going to be unhinged. It's going to be misdirected and likely it's going to be unrighteous anger. Let's talk about another extreme or for apathetic. If we're indifferent, maybe we don't ever get angry about anything. I'm a pretty even-keeled kind of guy. Like, I just steady, go with the flow. Maybe it's because you're passionate about nothing. But if we're passionate about the things of God, his honor, his glory, his word, his love for people, his righteousness, his desire for our holiness, then anger... Our anger will slowly but surely be coming into alignment with his righteousness and will often lead towards righteous response. Look at me again in verse seven through eight. I took counsel within myself. What does that mean? It means I took a moment to breathe. I took a beat because I didn't want to act out. Deep breath, Nehemiah. And then I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we're able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers so that they may be sold to us? They were silent and could not find a word to say. Now remember, these are fellow believers. These are people within the family of God. These are people within the walls of Jerusalem. They're engaged in the same mission. They are shoulder to shoulder on the same project. They may be sitting next to each other in the same pew at church. And yet there's serious breakdown in the relationships. What Nehemiah is essentially saying is, 
We are making extraordinary work in this external healing work out here, but our culture within is toxic. Culture, it means the consistent, observable patterns of behavior. What is observable or what maybe even you feel when you walk into a group or an organization. And Ray Ortland once said that the true test of faithfulness among God's people, the true test of a faithful church, is both their doctrine on paper and also their culture in practice. What they believe to be true, what is said and stated to be true about God, but also what's lived out, how we relate to one another, how we live in community. The culture within a group is not going to be simply determined by a mission statement or stated values or even shared religious convictions. Culture is often determined by what is simply tolerated, by what's tolerated. And if you read any leadership book from the last few decades, they're essentially going to say the same thing, that the culture of any group is almost always shaped by the worst behaviors that leadership is willing to tolerate. You don't believe me? Ask an elementary teacher at the beginning of a school year who inherits a classroom and you're like, gosh, dang, what did they do last year? I'll say it again. The culture of a group is often shaped most by the worst behaviors that leadership is willing to tolerate. Nehemiah, the commissioned leader, is not willing to tolerate. And he's not willing to allow this sort of culture to shape the future of Jerusalem, to undermine all the good work that they've been doing. So he confronts it. He confronts it head on. In his um, wonderful book on leadership, The Emotionally Healthy Leader, an author named Pete Scazzaro talks about how many of us today are, are super afraid of confrontation and conflict. Think about those words. Those are, they have negative connotation, Right? confrontation and conflict. You're like, oh, no thanks. That sounds dirty. But what he points out is that if you truly care about people, and that's the question you have to ask, if you truly care about people, individuals and a group, then you're going to have to once in a while engage in healthy conflict for the overall health of a community. And he goes on and says this, Jesus shows us that healthy Christians do not avoid conflict. His life was filled with it. He was in regular conflict with the religious leaders, the crowds, the disciples, even his own family. That's shady. <laughs> Out of our desire to bring true peace, Jesus um, dis um, sorry, disrupted the false peace all around him. He refused, listen to these words, he refused to spiritualize conflict avoidance. How do we spiritualize conflict avoidance? Uh, I'm just going to let the spirit move in their heart. I'm just going to let the spirit speak to them. God doesn't need me. Or, you know, I just want to be gracious. You know, God's called us to be gracious. Who am I, you know? Don't spiritualize being afraid of confrontation. Look at me in verse nine, he's not afraid. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. It's not good. You guys still with me? I'm about to lose my voice, but I'm giving you my everything right now. <laughs> 
The thing that you are doing is not good. I think that one of the most effective tests of our own personal maturity is how we respond to that single statement. What you're doing is not right. How do you respond to being told, I think you're in the wrong? How we respond to confrontation, how we respond to being held accountable, how we respond to being told directly, not beating around the bush, but just like directly, this isn't right. He continues, verse 9. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? How are you insisting on living like this? Are you, have you forgotten the fear of God? Have you forgotten who God is? And are you content to just have the nations mock us forever? Verse 10. And pay attention to this. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting interest. What, did, what just happened there? Nehemiah just admitted guilt. It's almost as if he's like, Dude, I'm going to tell these dudes all that's wrong with him. And as it's coming out of his mouth, he sees the plank in his own eye. He's like, oh, crap. Wait a minute. How have I been spending my money? What are my practices with the people that work for me and my servants? He, he is admitting his own guilt. He is admitting his part in all of this. He is taking responsibility for somehow contributing to the big problem. It's not like you guys out there. He's like, wait a minute, us, we're the problem. Now, what's the level of his involvement in the problem? We don't know. He doesn't tell us. But he acknowledges at the end of the day, he's complicit. See, there are sins of commission. If you're writing notes, take this down. There are sins of commission and there are sins of omission. Which means there are the things that we do that we should not do. The sins that we commit. I think that we're familiar with those. But also, if you were paying attention in our confession today, there are also sins of omission. The things that we ought to have done, but we leave undone. The believer repents of those sins as well. Not just the thing, bad things I did, but the good things I didn't do. And what Nehemiah knows is that his own personal actions or his inactions is impacting the whole. So he says, let us abandon this. So again, another time for us to get personal here and, and apply this. Reality, what in our lives or in our community needs to be abandoned for the sake of the honor of God, the reputation of Christ's mission, and the health of our culture within this community? What are we doing or not doing that is unknowingly undermining the growth and the health of this church community? Maybe it is the way that we deal with money. Maybe it is money-related. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's theft. It's tax season. Just saying. Maybe it's dishonesty. Maybe it's compromise. Maybe it's exploitation. Maybe it's entitlement. You don't have to be rich to be greedy. Or maybe it's the way that we relate to others sexually, lustfully, abusively, manipulatively, 
uh, aggressively. The writer of Hebrews says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Christians not only are willing to set aside and abandon sin, but weights. What are weights? I don't exactly know, but it's not sin technically. It's just things that we determine through Christian maturity that are holding us back. It's not bad. It's not breaking the law. It's not breaking God's law. But it's the thing that we determine. It's holding me back from a life of faithfulness. And you know what? In the grand scheme of eternity, it's just not worth holding on to. I'm going to let it go for the sake of Jesus Christ. You know what I mean? So Nehemiah says, abandon these practices. We need to stop this. But notice he doesn't stop there. And I'm going to press into something maybe uncomfortable right now. What we see is that a necessary step of repentance and healing also, and I believe this is a biblical word. I'm not going to apply it for us as a community or as a nation, but I need to make us familiar with an extremely biblical word here. A necessary step of repentance and healing is reparations. Look at me in verse 11 through 12. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you have said. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. So I think that we get this idea that faith is personal, right? God's my own personal savior. And if I sin or I do bad things, you know what? I feel really bad about it. I go to God. I confess that sin. I apologize. I say, Lord, I feel so bad about it. And it's good, right? Forgiven. It's all good. But what we neglect is that the Bible also calls us to bear fruits in accordance with repentance. Why? Because faith is embodied. Faith isn't just spiritual. It, it actually impacts our lives and our relationships. I think about when, when Jesus, you remember Zacchaeus and the sycamore tree and all that? You know the story? Anyone willing to sing the song? Missy, are you willing to sing the song? <laughs> And Jesus comes to Zacchaeus. He's like, I'm coming to your house, man. And he shows him profound grace. And it says, Zacchaeus stood and he said to the, the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said, wow, today salvation has come to this house. No, that's tricky because it sounds like maybe Jesus is saying, okay, if you give all your money away, then you're saved. We know from the gospel that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing that we do saves us. But what Jesus is recognizing is that this action right here is the necessary proof. Wow, 
Faith is taking root in your life right now. And here's how it's being manifest in your life. A willing to, willingness to make amends. Surely salvation has come to this house. Back to Nehemiah chapter five, verse 13. I also shook out the fold of my garment. And then I said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. Wow. And all the assembly said, what? Amen. <laughs> what if I said that? May God shake you out. And you're like, amen. I say like, Jesus is Lord. And you're like, amen. <laughs> hey, they said, what? Oh, I'm about to fall off the stage here. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they what? Promised. That's a third mention. They did as they promised. To change a culture, it requires the whole assembly saying, amen, we're in. You're lucky. I do not have a lot of confidence in my own ability. I have a lot of flaws. Self-confidence and leadership is just not one of them. And this is so beautiful because what it means is if God is going to do a shaping work in the church of changing culture, it does not rest on one or a few leaders. It happens when the whole congregation comes together and they're like, heck yeah, we're in. Amen. And to carry this out, he does like a symbolic gesture here to, to seal this commitment. Now, it may sound weird, but we have our own things like, hey, let's shake on it. Or if you're a kid, what do you say? Pinky swear. Pinky swear, right? It's a symbolic gesture where we're like, we are going to hold up both ends of the bargain here. We are committing to this. It's like how we hold each other accountable within our membership to fulfill our commitments. We have made commitments to one another to, to believe and to worship and to gather and to pray and to, to give and to serve and to reach together. And we hold each other accountable to those commitments. Let's, let's be all in on this. I gotta close. I gotta close. The final point here is personal sacrifice. A philosophy that you've heard me uh, mention multiple times, something I've committed my life ministry to is, is a very simple concept. And it's this, you don't change something by trying to change what's wrong with something. You change something by introducing something new and more beautiful that makes the old obsolete. And the only way to effectively change a broken, toxic culture is to replace it with something better. Nehemiah is not going to succeed in any of this if he simply is just addressing what is wrong with the community. What Nehemiah does is he does address what is wrong, but he then pivots for the next 12 years years to replace a culture of greed with a culture of generosity, modeling it in his own life in a costly way. We're told that for the remainder of his time as governor, which was 12 years, so do the math, 12 years times 12 months times 365 days, Nehemiah opened his table to others, and he did not require the additional tax for his own food. It's what one commentator described as the cheerful disregard of one's entitlements. He forfeits his rights for the sake of others out of his own pocket. And then out of his own pocket, 
he pays for 150 people to come around his table. So 12 times 12 times 365 times 150 plates. I'm not a math whiz, but that's a lot of food that Nehemiah is willingly able and generous enough to give for the sake of setting this culture within the community. There's an old phrase, I'm not even sure who said it, that if you have more than you need, build a bigger table, not a higher fence. If you have more than you need, build a bigger table, not a higher fence. What's Nehemiah doing? He's practicing hospitality and generosity and not just to his own people. Did you catch that? To the neighboring nations, foreigners. This, this would have been scandalous in Jerusalem, by the way. Foreigners coming to the table of the governor at his own expense. As the people of God, we must be willing to sacrifice our comforts, our financial goals, our dreams, our agendas for the sake of generosity and hospitality. Let me put it this way. If your participation doesn't hurt you, if your participation doesn't cost you significantly, if it does not mess with your life and mess with your goals, then there is something holding you back from being transformed into the likeness of a generous God. And he says right here in verse 18, all of this was prepared at my expense. Prepared at my expense. Verse one, there's that phrase, great outcry for the biblical reader. It's supposed to hearken us back to Exodus. That sounds familiar, a great outcry. It takes us back in scripture. But when I read this, I believe it's actually something that may be pointing us forward, prepared at my expense. It reminds me of one who would say, I go to prepare a place for you at my expense. See, the appeal to all of this, the appeal to living a generous life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one who laid down his life and his own rights in order to lift us up and deliver us from slavery to sin. The one who paid it all on the cross, the one who Paul would describe as being rich but became poor so that we may become rich in him. The one who even now as we speak is extending the table of heaven to welcome us and others. The one who gave us a new heart and a new mind and his Holy Spirit to follow in his way and now who is now empowering us to be culture shapers with shapers within our community even now as we speak. The one who is empowering us and enabling us and giving us grace to actually make real changes in the communities that we occupy. I wanna close with a passage from Philippians chapter two and the worship team can actually come forward as I'm reading this passage. It's from Philippians chapter two and it says this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can I get an amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your son. Jesus.